Across the city and South Cambridgeshire. On FM, digital and your mobile. Cambridge 105 Radio. Welcome to the seventh generation. Here on Cambridge 105 Radio, across the city and South Cambridgeshire. With myself, Nick Skelton, Sarah Strachan, Michelle Golder and Sheena Mooney. The seventh generation, episode 21. The Lost Words. NASA, over in the USA, has been tracking global temperatures since 1881, and they've just announced that 2020 tied with 2016 as the hottest year since those records began. We've just come out of January 2021, and for the first time in our region this winter, we've just experienced a week of freezing temperatures. It felt strange, abnormal, but it used to happen every year. In Ely, the Babylon Gallery is putting together an exhibition beginning this March which asked artists to respond to the 1962-2018 to 2018 weather diaries of Soham resident Betty Mann. It's called No Frost at Night, an evocative title. Meanwhile, Cambridge's own nature writer, Robert McFarlane, teamed up with artist Jackie Morris to publish a book called The Lost Words. Words about nature which have fallen out of the Oxford English Dictionary for Children because young people just weren't using them. All of these things got our team thinking. What have we lost due to climate change and habitat loss? What are we forgetting? And how can we remember what we still have so that we don't forget to care about it? So this month's show is about just that. First up, we find out about the environment of our region in the past through the memories of two local men. After that, we talk to the director of the charity Cambridge Curiosity and Imagination, Ruth Sapsit, along with academic and educator Nicola Walsh, about how the lost words and connecting with nature is inspiring the memories and imagination of today's children. Our sound piece on memory begins with Sarah Strachan speaking with Mike Rouse, three times Mayor of Ely, and author of numerous books on the history, geology and law of the Fens. Later in the piece, you hear bits from Sheena Mooney's interview with Hazingfield's Johnny Baker, retired mechanic, nature lover and South Cambridgeshire character, whose father ran the first organic vegetable stand outside Arjuna Whole Foods in the 80s. Mike, I came across you through one of your many books about the region, and in particular your book, How to Speak Fen, Law and Language of the Fens. So by way of introduction, Mike, to yourself and the book for our listeners, perhaps you could tell me what prompted you to write the book. Thank you, Sarah. I always read a lot as a child, and I, I've written for as long as I can remember all sorts of things. And I've been fascinated by the history of the Fens. And I wanted to use some of the odd knowledge and stuff that I've gained over the years to spread it further, to make it available to more people. Otherwise, at 80 years of age, which I am, people are saying, you know a lot of things, yes, but you need to pass it on. 
So I'd written a number of books, and then I wrote one called Why Are the Fens Flat, which tried to explain the geology of the fens and the importance of the management of water and why the fens were shrinking and peat and all those sort of things. But a, a sort of natural follow-up to that was something I'd always been interested in, which was the language and vocabulary of the fens. So gradually I put these words down, talked to people, and thought, yes, I've got enough to do, not just a gloss but then I'll put them in the context of how people lived and how hard life was for people because it's important to remember that life can be hard on the fens now difficult changing circumstances but years ago it was incredibly hard and coming from two local families of three generations of my family were blacksmiths farriers and vets in Soham and from about 1840, and on my mother's side, they were market gardeners, wheelwrights, agricultural woodworkers, everything. So my roots are around here. I was particularly interested in the Fen language used to describe the land and the weather. Words like mizzle, for example, maybe, you know, misty drizzle. I love the lazy old wind, the cold wind that doesn't go round you, it goes through you. Where did you get the inspiration from for the word? You know, the Fens are beautiful. You can see the most wonderful sunrises, sunsets. You can see for miles, but you can be out in them and the wind is blowing and the weather turns and they can be bleak and black and harsh. And to live in that environment, to work in that environment, you had to be tough and stoic. Mm. And I think that's a characteristic of the Fenman, this sort of rough humour, this cheerfulness in the face of adversity. Do you think people yeah. were more in tune with the weather and the land because they misjudged it at their peril? Absolutely. The fans were a dangerous place. A lot of water about. We all like to look at water, but it can claim many lives. And a lot of Fen children lost their lives in floods, in streams, because they had to cross on rickety bridges or a plank or try and jump across and all sorts of things like that. There are boggy areas, there are areas that were used for peat digging. If you look at an area like Wiccan Fen, you imagine being there without its boardwalks in an area like that, with all its ponds and pools and high rushes. Imagine being there on a sort of night in the dark. And so that led to a number of stories about the Fens as warning. I touch on some of these, like the old hooky man who lives in Fenland water. And if you fall in the water, the old hooky man who's under all the water, the ponds, the rivers, the nights will wrap his bony arms around you, dig his sharp nails into you, and hold you down until you're drowned. So don't go near the water. Mm. Don't wander off into the fens because there are boggets and bogles out there, creatures that will lead you astray. You might think that's a friendly lantern you see there, but that could be the old lantern man. And just when you get close to him, he disappears. And now you're really lost. And now the real scuttling horrors come out the horrible things of the fens, the dead hand that if it gets hold of you will pull you down into the marsh. You can't break its grip. It will pull you down until you are lost forever. So you told these stories because a lot of people couldn't read as warnings of the dangers of the fen. And, you know, just simply going out and getting wet and coming back to it damp cottage where there's no real warmth or what we have today in in the way of double glazing and central heating and 
always being cold or chilly, going to bed in your clothes, desperately hard life. And uh, you had to make the most of the sunlight when you'd got it and stay in and during the dark. I had seven brothers and sisters, so there was 10 of us all together. Well, we didn't buy vegetables, so to grow that amount of veg for as big a family as that was a pretty major undertaking. And to have vegetables in the winter was, it's difficult, isn't it? You've got to grow sprouts and those horrible January kings. Cabbages and sprouts were very bitter in the old days. They bred them now to be delicious. <laughs> in the old days, they were pretty awful. <laughs> we used to have to go out and pick these sprouts and dig leeks. And it used to be very cold. One doesn't want to exaggerate when one gets older, but some winters were very cold for a very long time. Didn't have a few days of cold weather. You had six weeks sometimes, where I mean the ground was frozen for the whole period. You really needed a drill to dig leaks. And the sprouts were solid. You'd bring them in in a washing-up bowl or something, and they'd be like bullets because they were solid ice. Hard work for a child. Did you used to go foraging for mushrooms or anything like that? We went mushrooming every year. Chivers and people kept sheep on the opposite side of the river and cows. And there was lots of mushrooms. If you went at the right time of the year, you could get bagfuls. We used to eat the fish from the river sometimes, but they mm-hmm. were... Not very nice. They're very muddy, the fish. You had to soak them in salt for a long while to get them not to taste of mud. Crayfish were very good, and you could paddle in the river and, and they would be hiding in, in amongst the roots of the willows that came down and dangled into the river. Quite nerve-wracking when you were small to put your hand <laughs> up these holes with these things with great claws on the end. I remember getting a bucket full of them. Another expression that caught my eye is, if she cracks, she bears. If she bends, she breaks. The old Fen warning for those about to go on the ice. And skating played a huge part in Fenland life. Can you tell me a bit more about the tradition of Fen skating? Yes, I mean, the big skating centre was Welney, right next to the washers. Uh, Littleport was another place where they flooded the mirrors so there could be skating. But where there was washland, where there was hard winter... You could skate because if you worked on the land, you didn't get paid if you weren't working. If you could skate and there were skating matches or you could challenge someone, you could perhaps win yourself something useful, some food, some clothes or something like that. As well as it being a social thing, people bet on their favourites. So they bet on races between, you know, Fish Smart or whoever and his contemporaries. And they bet on challenges. People then went to sell stuff, so it could be a great gathering of people together. When the uh, moors were flooded at Littleport, which was quite a large area right next to the station, they ran special excursion trains down to Littleport so that people could watch the skating or join in the skating. And then you had the famous challenge of one of the registers racing against a steam train along there and all that sort of stuff. I like the old Fen saying that I came across, it takes ice to meet old friends. We live in the same village and it's such a treat to have the river running beside the village. Do you have memories about the river, what it's meant to you in your life? Yes, I do have a lot of thoughts about the river. I played in the river for all my childhood. I still go and swim in it occasionally, 
But we used to go there in the summer a lot, and I spent lots of time as a child wandering around the river and chucking things in it and damming it up and generally messing about in it. We used to go boating and do bad things as well, I expect. We had a great deal of freedom. We used to spend days down there, really, come back for tea in the evening. You talk a lot in your book about Fenland creatures, some of them the superstitious ones like old Hookie Man and the Boggles and Boggarts and even Black Shuck. But you also mention glass eels or elvers. Eels were a huge part of Fenland tradition. It is said that the stones for Ely Cathedral were paid for in eels. Eels were caught in enormous quantities. As a child, when I lived with my grandparents, my grandfather, my mum's dad, would go fishing and bring fresh fish home, might be eels, and put them in the sink, and grandma would prepare them and fry them or cook them, and they would be eaten. Eels, no, we don't know why. It could be uh, because they breed in the Sargasso Sea and sort of travel right across the Atlantic. This is why they're such amazingly sort of almost mystical creatures and then enter the Fenland Rivers, tiny little slivers of things as glass elvers and glass eels. And then they grow in the Fenland Rivers. Is it that they're being taken off course by changes in Atlantic with the warming of the water or something? Is it because when they get into our rivers, they can't get through a lot of... Fen drainage has been changed a lot over the years. That's why a lot of the land doesn't flood and the water is managed very carefully. Is it all the dams and weirs, etc., that they, they can't get through? So now, you know, the EU urges to install sort of ladders or whatever so the eels can get through and carry on into the rivers. They're expensive things to do. There is some signs that there might be a bit of recovery. So what other changes have you noticed, John? Uh, it's so different. The river has much less water in it in general. It's got masses of water in it at the moment, but generally yeah. speaking, it's smaller, narrower. All of the chalk streams that flow into the river and help fill it are disappearing because the water table's going down and down and down, and those little streams that filled the river no longer run. I think when you think about it, the amount of insects that there are, and beetles, general things flying about in the air, all the time, at night and in the day, compared to what there was, there are so few things flying about in the air. There are fewer gnats and there are fewer wasps. There are fewer moths. There are fewer of everything. When you used to drive cars about in the 50s and 60s, car bodies would be covered with stuff, dead moths or whatever they were, all of the stuff in the air. Now when you drive on a nice moonlit night in the, in the summer, you do see things flitting about in your headlights, but there was masses in there. Yes, I remember. And as a result, I think there's less diversity of bird life and all of the things. It all starts from the small things. In the 60s, all the hedges were ripped up to make the fields bigger. So the hedges are where things live, aren't they? And the farmers used to spill more grain and have barns that were open, really. <laughs> There's lots of rules. You can't keep grain in open barns anymore, so the sparrows can't eat a bit of it. 
But otherwise, in the friends, you know, it's not all doom and gloom. In the 60s, I suppose, intensive farming was digging up land and ripping up bridleways and paths and farmers were farming right to the edge. Now there's a huge amount of very responsible farming and looking after wildlife. At Barwe, a massive salad producer, on their farms they have areas where they're creating woodland and developing water areas. There's the Kingfisher Reserve down near Streatham which has all been developed over the last few years, which these are amazing places. There's the National Trust developing Wiccan Fen, and there's the other plans to rewild Fenland up where Whittlesey Mere used to be, between sort of Ramsey and Whittlesey. There's a huge amount going on to restore habitat. And I think looking at the photographs, which I see on Facebook, I don't get out much. There's a lot more, you know, there are herons, bitterns, I'm told, are back in certain parts. And as a council uh, here, we've installed swift boxes and things like that. So it's a very positive story, I think, balanced against the need of people to eat and the pressures on farmers to produce, mainly from supermarkets, to produce cheap food. Farmers can't produce cheap food for all the reasons we were talking about. As long as you grow crops on the land, you are subject to the weather. You've been listening to our reporters, Sarah Strachan and Sheena Mooney, interviewing Mike Rouse, Ely councillor, former mayor and writer, and Johnny Baker, who grew up in the fields and fens of South Cambridgeshire. The Seventh Generation on Cambridge 105 Radio. Next up, Michelle Golder finds out how Cambridge curiosity and imagination is creating new memories with the children of Cambridge. When I started researching ideas for this show on memory and the environment, one of the first things I looked up was what people had said about the book The Lost Words by Robert McFarlane and Jackie Morris. And I came across this quote from Robert McFarlane in an article written by Louise Walsh, which brings together the two themes of the book. Just as nature's names are vanishing from the language of children, nature itself is vanishing. Forgetting is an easy way to lose things. As each generation becomes more at ease with less nature, we forget what it is that we've lost. Keeping everyday nature alive in the words and stories of children in particular, who are the ones who will grow up and decide what to save and what to lose, seems to me vital. There's an organization here in Cambridge that is doing exactly that, and that is Cambridge Curiosity and Imagination, an arts and well-being charity that recently partnered with Dr. Nicola Walsh of Anglia Ruskin University to do some work which was partly inspired by the lost words. Dr. Walsh, who is head of the School for Education and Social Care at Anglia Ruskin University, joins me on Zoom today, together with founding member and director of Cambridge Curiosity and Imagination, Ruth Sapsed, to talk about that project and the importance of nature, memory, and creativity to our mental health. Welcome, Nicola. Hello. And welcome, Ruth. Hi, lovely to be here. Ruth, I think I'll start with you. Just very briefly, can you tell me about Cambridge Curiosity and Imagination? It's a great name. So what you do and sort of how it got started. Yeah, I'd love to. It is a great name. I'm probably going to use CCI from now on just to kind of speed up when we're referring to it. 
we've been together nearly 20 years as a network. We came together very informally at first, sitting together as artists, as teachers, as researchers, as sort of colleagues in the cultural sector, museums and galleries. And we were talking and worrying about what we saw as the erosion of children's freedoms. We saw them having less space to explore, less space to express their ideas, even less space to move. And it really galvanised us to say we wanted to work together to bring that out into the open, start to address that. We became a charity 15 years ago. And we're sort of passionate, I think, about the power of the arts and access to arts and culture to transform children's lives and to work with what we see as their sort of brilliant imaginations and their incredible capacities. And to start from a real kind of space of seeing them as the wonderful kind of creators that they are. We very much have understood that we need to work with everyone around the child, not just the child. We talk about children at the heart of the process, children and young people, but it's really about everybody who's involved in their lives. And that's led us to do lots and lots of work with families, but also, of course, with the educators and professionals who support them. So we do a lot of work in schools, but also with their neighbours, with their friends, with families and all that sort of thing. And that's led us to talk about and be interested in this idea of creatively healthy communities And that's really kind of shaped the vision about where the projects and the way that we're working has developed. And we do this by focusing on kind of opening up spaces for curiosity and imagination. We think of them as like muscles that get a bit worn out. And if we're not exercising them and really using them, then then they're going to atrophy. And that's the same for all of us. And the arts practices that the artists I work with, we've really thought about the way that they practice and the way that they're working and thought about how to share that with all sorts of people. The work predominantly started in classrooms, but what we realised was that getting out of classrooms was really valuable. And the world around us, the natural world is often the urban world. You know, it doesn't have to be, you don't have to get to forests or mountains or lakes or whatever. It can be the pathways around the outside of the school. It can be little backyards. It can even be car parks. We'll often laugh about the sort of creative work you can make possible in a car park. And that's really expanded this idea about the importance of the natural world around us to facilitate creativity and led us to meet people like Nicola and do the research that we're doing now. Fantastic. So Nicola, let's go to you now. Tell us about the project that you're doing and how you've worked with CCI. So I was introduced to Ruth and CCI about five years ago by a mutual colleague. Um, My research focus generally is around environmental and sustainability education. And increasingly at that time, I've been exploring how arts-based teaching, which engages with children on a more effective level, can develop their understandings of sustainability. So I heard about the work of CCI, um, within which the environment and nature connectivity is so obviously important, as Ruth has just explained, and was really interested in exploring this practice further. So particularly the impact it has on children's nature connectivity and pro-environmental behaviour. So within our first piece of work with CCI, we undertook a focus group discussion with some of their artists. And what very clearly came out of that was a sense from the artists that their creative practice in nature was supporting children's well-being. Perhaps significantly, artists particularly expressed a belief that this had impact for those who were either from a more disadvantaged background or had additional learning needs, which meant that they struggled with a traditional classroom environment, for example. And it was this that really formed the basis of our current Eco Capabilities Research Project. Eco Capabilities is funded by the Arts and Humanities Research Council and is a collaboration between Anglia Ruskin University and CCI 
which aims to explore the impact of the creative nature-based practice of CCI on children's well-being. And we're focusing on primary age children, years three to five, so around age seven to ten. So we're interested in really what children need to flourish and live a good life. And a really important element of that work is, like the practice of CCI, that the project is participatory, so sees children very much as co-creators of our work. And as part of the project, we're exploring with the children what they feel they need to flourish, so how they themselves define eco-capabilities and the extent to which this changes across the course of a project with CCI over a few months. We were originally meant to be working in schools last year, but of course the impact of COVID-19 on schools has meant that this has been delayed. And our plan now is to go into schools at some point after Easter, when all being well, we can't guarantee anything, but all being well, children will be permitted to return to face-to-face learning. And we can be absolutely certain that when children do return to school, they'll more than ever need the supportive and nurturing practice of CCI to help them reconnect with school, their environment and each other. So I want to pick up on a couple of things there. So through your interviews with the artists that work for CCI, Cambridge Curiosity and Imagination, you discovered that these artists felt that children's well-being was profoundly affected by creative work in the outdoors. So this was particularly true for children from disadvantaged backgrounds. Ruth, can you talk a little bit more about that? Why particularly is work outside in nature and creative work outside in nature important for those disadvantaged children? I think it's the significance of what the space is when you're out there. You know, it's a very different environment for children to be in and what that enables in terms of them to be able to make connections, build relationships, have confidence to express their own ideas, have their imaginations and their curiosity sparked. I was only talking to the head teacher I worked with very closely yesterday, and she was talking about a practice of welly walks that they have in their school. And what they're learning is that children are less distracted outside than they are inside. It seems extraordinary that actually the outside world is a calming, quieter, more generative space for ideas and the opportunity to talk to each other and to notice things and to feel calmer, I think. And often these inside spaces that we expect children to concentrate in, we expect them to work in, horrible word to use for about children's learning, but, and actually they're very noisy spaces. And I don't just mean sound noise. I mean, there's stuff all over the walls, there's stuff all around you. You can't move. You're not in your body in the same way. You're not able to kind of connect with each other in the same way. The outside space is an incredibly generous environment for learning. We hear it time and again with teachers that they'll notice that children who can't concentrate in the classroom are calmer outside, are able to make friendships outside, are able to express their ideas. And that project, Mayfield Primary School, was particularly focused on children who weren't able yet to feel confident to speak. You know, they hadn't yet found their voices in the classroom. But actually, the way that Philippa worked with them outside is, you know, they couldn't stop. The words kept bubbling up because there was so much they wanted to talk about. There was so much they wanted to share with each other. There was so many ideas that they wanted to, you know, the motivation was incredibly powerful outside for them. How does the lost words relate directly to the the project? The Lost Words refers to the the specifics of the nature of the project that Ruth um, just referred to in terms of the aims of that specific project in particular were to try and support 
be developing a voice for those children who had been identified as potentially needing one in that situation. And it was working across a nursery and a school, so identifying children from different age groups and cohorts working together to be able to sort of gain that voice and find their words. So while it was using the lost words in multiple ways, if you like, so referring, yes, to the importance of the outdoors and and some of Robert McFarlane's ideas brought out in the book, but also more specifically to the context of that particular school. Ruth, can you expand on that? There were two meanings of the lost words in this context. How did the book fit into it? So we took the book as a kind of initial sort of provocation, if you like. The artists, when they think about how to kind of invite children into these creative projects, they'll start with provocations. So they'll start with ideas that they think are going to resonate with the children and with the educators and with the families. And it's very powerful, isn't it, what lost words represents? You know, the idea that these words have drifted out of children's languages, they've drifted away from children's ideas. Why have they done that? It's because we're not inviting children to connect with them. So the kind of premise of the book and the premise of the project was about reconnecting. How do we reconnect with the world on our doorstep? How do we reconnect with some of these things? And how do we invite children in to respond to them through their brilliant imaginations and their questions and and so on? Are you able to give an example of how that might be approached for a child? So the Oxford Junior Dictionary was reprinted, I think it was 2015, and some very sharp-eyed readers went through the book and noticed that out of the book had fallen all these words for nature, and into the book had come digital words, so MP3, voicemail, words like that, and out of the book had fallen otter, wren, newt, ivy, bramble, conquer. I mean, just extraordinary that a leading publisher of a dictionary would think that children didn't need to be able to look up those words. And it started a whole series of questions about, well, why aren't children using those words? Why why do we not think that they're important in children's lives? And the publisher in their defence said that they had been using a robot to analyse children's vocabulary for the BBC Young Writers competition. Clearly, they weren't writing about the ideas. And then that, of course, meant people think, well, if they're not writing about the outdoors, they're not in the outdoors. And so that sort of sparked a kind of we need to connect children back. And Robert and Jackie brilliantly put that beautiful kind of inspiration together. But what is great about that book is it, it inspires a whole lot of questions about where does it come from why do we need it you know Robert says we we find it hard to love what we can't give a name to and what we do not love we will not save you know we're in a time of terrible kind of climate damage going on and awful you know these really big questions about what are we going to do about the state of the world when lost words came out into and was published and then these campaigns started to come about about people saying actually everybody needed a copy of that book in their lives and there's been fantastic evidence of it being used with dementia with older people with special needs but we put together a campaign to raise funds to get it for every primary school in the county so back in 2018 we did a campaign and we took it and it sparked really good conversations because of course it opens up a conversation with schools about well how are you getting children out in the outdoors what sort of connection are they having to the outdoors how are you engaging with the outdoors so it's been a wonderful book to have a connection to online on digital and on FM. This is Cambridge 105 Radio. That was Ruth Sapsid of Cambridge Curiosity and Imagination and Nicola Walsh of Anglia Ruskin University. And we'll hear the second half of Michelle's interview with them after this announcement about Cambridge 105 Radio. 
Welcome to the LMG Awards. Not this year, though, due to COVID-19. So, roundabout to the rescue. People have been streaming gigs on the internet, recording at home and sending things around and getting them mixed and mastered remotely. Tim Willett, host of the new Music Generator and the Awards, who will be joining me, Tony Barnfield, to review the local music scene over the past year. Life can be really good sometimes, and other times it can be really bad. Really bad, like this year. (laughs) Yeah. never stop the music and local artists will do all they can to keep performing and keep their music out there so join tim willett and me tony barnfield for roundabout now on sunday evenings at six with our new lunchtime repeat on mondays at one and now for the second half of michelle's interview with cambridge curiosity and imagination and researcher nicola walsh from anglia ruskins school for education and social care Nicola, can we turn to you? Your research is into children's well-being, and it isn't just language that's being lost, is it? So how have children's experiences of the world changed, both before and then during lockdown, and how is it affecting them? Even before COVID-19, there was quite considerable concern by some that children were less connected to the world around them in particular. Um, There's a variety of thoughts around why this is the case. For example, some people, um, a particular um, researcher in Australia, Karen Malone, talks about the bubble wrap generation of children who are in effect wrapped up and protected from the perceived dangers of the outdoors. And instead of being allowed to roam or play freely as they might once have been able to do, children have a timetable of organised activities, often doesn't provide them with the same opportunities to connect meaningfully with their local environment. I think for many families, life is also busier. So a significant proportion of children living within families where both parents are having to work And in this situation, it's more challenging to create those spaces and that time. And the plethora of electronic devices that are often available in the home can easily become a mechanism for what's thought to be sort of safely entertaining children, keeping them safe in the home. So this was already a context of concern for many in terms of the lack of opportunities for children to go outside. But beyond this, COVID-19 and its associated lockdowns has really, I think, brought to light inequalities in access to nature and green spaces. So picking up on the idea that's earlier in terms of the disadvantage. The period of lockdown has been associated with a risk to mental health and well-being of those confined to their homes. And this disproportionately affects those from more disadvantaged communities, particularly those without access to gardens or green space. Access to high quality green space isn't equal. So disadvantaged communities have significantly less access, not only to their own gardens, but also to green space close to their homes. So they're not able to go out and find these spaces to have their hour long walk or their daily exercise. And I think for those with big gardens or access to nearby open spaces, the initial lockdown, certainly last year in the spring and summer, was perhaps an opportunity to reconnect with some of those environments as a family but for a significant number of children living in more disadvantaged communities lockdown just highlighted the impact of what's been termed green poverty and the importance of access to green spaces and nature for our mental health and well-being so people in disadvantaged communities had less access to that and therefore were more negatively impacted by COVID-19 through mental health and well-being. And at this time, which frankly, and Ruth alluded to in terms of a crisis, an environmental crisis, but a crisis that's been talked about in terms of the mental health and well-being of our communities and children. And this was talked about before COVID. Eco capabilities and our research very much aims to explore how working creatively with CCI artists in nature can reconnect children with their local spaces and thereby support their overall well-being. And I think this is really important as we think about hopefully a time when children will be able to return physically to school, because 
until they feel safe and well and back in schools, they won't be able to engage with any academic work or learning presented to them. So I think for all schools, sort of whether or not they have the luxury of CCI artists and the project we're working within, it'll be really important for them to think about how they reconnect, re-engage children with those spaces, with those environments, in order to help them to become familiar with those spaces and each other and be able to learn again. I mean, I loved what you said, Ruth, about that you can find nature even in a car park. And as someone who grew up in the suburbs in California, there was not much nature, but I was able to find insects in vacant lots near me. And so I used to put my face in the grass and discovered the tiny, tiny insect life that lived in it. Again, from my own experience living in a village, during the lockdown, we have seen families out with their children on a level that we never saw before. But what we never see in the village, almost never, even now, is children playing without adult supervision. You know, I think that the work that you're doing, it covers a lot of these different bases. But until children are given that freedom again, how can we encourage people to allow their children to be more free when people are increasingly fearful, I think, about the outside world? I'm asking that of you, Ruth. I think a lot of what we try and do is model the benefits of those freedoms together. You know, if I think about the work, for example, in Spinney Primary School, where they have this tiny little scruffy woodland where we started some of this outdoor work way back. And I think about one of the governors who was absolutely supportive, but very kind of, I don't think my little girl will like it. She doesn't like mud. You know, she's not comfortable with playing outside. Her little girl absolutely adored it. She rolled around in the mud. She got herself completely immersed in it. And the governor came up to me at the end of the project and said, what's been amazing about this is because of the way that uh, my daughter has come home and talked about it. And because you've given us these opportunities to come into this woodland as a family, and because you've kept sharing you know the benefits of it we started to go on walks more at the weekend and actually we've now joined the national trust and then she said because I bumped into her I don't know six months after the project is finished she said and my father has had a stroke recently and we're from the BAME community in Birmingham I wasn't brought up to go outdoors we didn't have outdoor walking as part of our kind of leisure pursuits at the weekend but because we would go and visit him we would take him out to go for walks to kind of encourage him to be outside and now he's going for more walks and I just thought what a lovely example of if you do this together if we all keep doing this together we'll all be reminded of the value of it and I don't think it's about telling or instructing or enforcing. It's about little steps of reminding people of the joy of it and the pleasure of it. And it's free. You know, it's there. You don't have to pay for it. You don't need special. I mean, of course, you do need to be warm and you do need to be comfortable. I was thinking about a lot of the way that when I work with the artists, they put a lot of effort into making sure, you know, they will take a blanket for children to sit on and they will if we can, we'll take hot chocolate and think about how to be comfortable in the outdoors. And if you're comfortable, then you'll stay longer, relax more, notice more, allow it to sort of feed you in all the ways it can. For me, I think it's really important to encourage people to spend time outside and understand that nature doesn't have to be a big green leafy park. It's not only these sort of designated natural spaces. You can see wonder in the reflection of a puddle or a sort of little sprig of grass growing up through a crack in the pavement. And the important thing to do is for parents is to notice and take time to notice these things with the children. So the trail of a slug across a concrete slab in the morning or frost in the branches of a tree. It's these small things that can be so important 
important and significant in inspiring children. There's so much that in about nature that we can see that we often take for granted that I think would really sort of inspire children and are so easily done between parents and their children themselves. It's a really good point to make as well that you don't have to go far, you know, urban, scruffy, small, and also you don't have to go for long, only five minutes. Step outside any of the birds for five minutes. That's how you help yourself go back for more, I think. And you don't have to know anything. I think some yeah. parents are intimidated because they may feel they don't have the knowledge of nature. Yeah, I agree. I'd really like to share the children of Mayfield Primary School that we've been lucky enough to work with for quite a few years now. They have a manifesto for their learning that they want people to know about. And I think it's a really lovely manifesto that actually parents might like to take on board. And these are their things that they want to be there when they're learning. They want to be free. They want to imagine anything. They want to have fun. They want people to know anyone can do it and that there are no wrong answers. They want to share and talk, not rush, try things out and experiment. Then they put a dash and they say, make a mess. See that art is everywhere. Keep trying. Move around and be comfortable. Be brave and trust. That's amazing. I want to bring it back to the lost words and memory because the show is about the memories that we have and how they get created and how that sort of influences our whole way of looking at the world. And almost everyone that I've interviewed for this show over the past 18 months that has a strong connection with nature that was formed in childhood, sometimes through reading, but more often through actual experience. So for the two of you, let's start with you, Nicola. Do you feel that you have a connection with nature and how did you forge that? Absolutely, I do. So for me, I spent some of my childhood, we moved around quite a lot, but portion of that which is really memorable for me is a time that I spent in a small village in North Yorkshire and I can remember very clearly being allowed to spend time relatively freely out in the fields around where I lived just coming back at tea time playing in the brook in the summer catching fish crayfish for example and as I say what I remember really strongly is having a sense of freedom and looking back a connection with the environment in which I was living and I think perhaps the most important moment in shaping my life since then, in terms of my whole career, really, and, and outlook on life, was travelling to Alaska in between my A-levels and my university degree. And I'd seen some information about glaciers in Alaska and undertook some fundraising to travel out there and work with a professor of glaciology there. And although it was only 1994, when there was really little public discourse around climate change in particular... I clearly remember being shown houses sinking into the melting permafrost and being told that this was melting as a result of global warming. And that image really struck with me. And I went on to study for a PhD in glaciology, spending time in the high Arctic and Iceland, and before going on then to become a geography teacher because I wanted to tell other people about this. And as a geography teacher, field work and outdoor education has obviously been absolutely central to my teaching. And this has remained as I've moved forwards from school into academia and university teaching. So professionally, my research around environmental and sustainability education is very much underpinned by this and the importance of developing children, a connection with nature, but also an understanding that they themselves are very much part of the natural world. So to remove this sort of binary, we're people and that's nature. 
and I think on a personal level, I've got three children. Spending out, um, time outside as a family, particularly through walking, has been a key element of our collective COVID-19 lockdown experience. I feel very much that it's allowed us to connect more strongly with our local environment and to know and to appreciate and to be part of what is actually on our doorstep more than we perhaps would have otherwise. So I feel really privileged to have had that experience through what has been a very challenging time. Um, but absolutely, the memories and the experiences that I've had have, have led me to where I am professionally and personally. I think it's really important. Thank you. What about you, Ruth? Two things came to mind when Nicola was talking about this. I was lucky enough to be brought up by a mother who was incredibly she loved dogs and cats, but she was also up for any animals being around us that we were interested in. So I had rats, hamsters, mice in great banks of kind of cages on the wall of my bedroom. I feel very lucky to have been brought up with the privilege of sort of animals as companions. That's been a gift, I think. And I've taken that into adulthood and I love my dog very dearly. She's a lovely companion. She's been a wonderful companion through lockdown. Water is an incredibly important part of my life now. I get in it whenever I can. I bath in it regularly. All my daughters love their baths. But we all love wild swimming and we'll swim in any piece of water we can find. And, and I think that came from, again, my mother would strip off and jump into any piece of water we passed any oh gosh if I can be near water in water seawater that's a really important part of me feeling connected and well and you know how lucky we are to have a city that with a beautiful river running through it that we must must look after better. I love that because between the two of you I think that illustrates that one it's never too late that some of your inspiration came when you were a young woman Nicola going to the Arctic pets are a great way of connecting with nature that was something that was huge in my life as well you know I, I had insects and I had pets you know you can start at any time and there's plenty of things that you can do with your children even in this difficult time I think is the message to take back from that we're almost out of time. We have to wrap up. But very quickly, Ruth, how can people get involved in the work of Cambridge Curiosity and Imagination or find out more about you? So a great place to start is our website, which is www.cambridgecandy.org.uk. So it's cambridgecandi.org.uk. And on there, under resources, all our publications are there free to read. There are various films that people can watch. Also on the events section, there's something called the Wild Exchange Games. And those are free to download, which are just different ways into exploring and playing together that have been designed by artists, inspired by children's ideas from many of the projects. People can join our mailing list. We send a bulletin out probably once or twice a term. So you just have to send an email to info at cambridgecandy.org.uk and we'll add you to that and keep in touch. Thank you so much. Lovely to, see you. Lovely to meet you. you Bye. As well. Bye. Bye, now. Bye. Thank you. You've been listening to Ruth Sapsid of Cambridge Curiosity and Imagination, along with the researcher Nicola Walsh from ARU. We'll include links to CCI and Nicola's project Eco Capabilities in our show description on the Cambridge 105 radio page and our Facebook page. And just a reminder, we'd love to hear your thoughts, responses and ideas for future shows. So write to us at seventhgeneration at cambridge105.co.uk. That's 7th generation. Or tweet us on at the 7th Gen Cam. Or join us on Facebook. Remember, you can hear this and other episodes on our Mixcloud page. Tell your friends. 
And now you can also listen to our latest shows as a podcast. Visit the Cambridge 105 Radio website, cambridge105.co.uk. Now don't forget that you can hear the seventh generation live on Cambridge 105 Radio. And it's now on the first Wednesday of the month at 9 and the first Sunday of the month at 6pm. Spread the word, tell your friends, make sure you don't miss an episode. That's the seventh generation. The show that's all things ecological and how people in Cambridgeshire and around are stepping up to face the climate, ecological and health emergency. Thanks for listening. Try to get some air out in nature and also let's take care of each other.